0: You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History, and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. John Jeremiah Cronin. His paper was entitled, Intrigue in the Exiled Caroline Court, the Case of George Radcliffe. What I've given you out there in the handout, which is up here as well, is the broad outline of the Caroline Stewart Court in Exile. So between 1646 and 1660, so that should provide a time frame in which the events I'll be talking about. I'll be talking about three major, or three particular court intrigues, one that took place between 1650 and 1651 while Charles II was in Scotland, and it's basically an attempt by some courtiers to seize control of the household of the Duke of York within the Stuart Court of Exile. The second one, of course, here, i uh, sorry, around here, in between 1654 and 1656, particularly in 1654, and it's an attempt to force a young prince in the Stuart Court, uh, Henry Duke of Gloucester, to become Catholic. And the last one we'll be talking about here involves around 1656, an attempt to influence or an attempt to decide who should be councillors to the Duke of York. And so George Radcliffe has a part to play in all three of these intrigues, so that's what I'll be dealing with. OK, so uh, I better crack on. Like many other royalists, George Radcliffe was compelled by events in Britain and Ireland to go into continental exile. By April 1647, he was in Caen, France. He initially was a well-respected member of the exiled royalist community, partly because of his previous association with Wentworth, by that time considered a royalist martyr. In mid-1649, the diarist John Evelyn referred to Radcliffe as that great favourite of the Earl of Strafford. Radcliffe took advantage of his standing to acquire a position, of, a position close to the Duke of York while in France, immediately before Charles left that country for Scotland in 1650. Charles II had evidently recommended him to his brother and may have had made a vague promise to Radcliffe of a position in York's household, though he was never actually appointed to any specific post. It was enough, however, to bring Radcliffe into York's circle, where he soon became a respected councillor. This did not last. In mid-1650, a dispute broke out amongst the exiles, with York and his councillors on one side and the Queen Mother and her advisers on the other. The origin of this dispute is unclear. Whatever the reason, though, it was immediately taken advantage of by disgruntled courtiers who encouraged the Stuart heir to flee Paris and his mother's rule. Control of the heir presumptive's household was no mean prize for a courtier, especially as the king was away. Consequently, those who may have felt discontented with conditions in the Louvre where the court was initially based, and with the dominance of the so-called Louvre set there, might have been happy to encourage York to flee Paris so as to allow them to carve out a more influential position for themselves in his household. Whatever the reasons, it was resolved by some of the Duke's councillors in September 1650 that he should quit Paris and travel to his sister's Mary's court in the United Provinces via Brussels. According to one exile, Lord Hatton, Radcliffe was not actually one of those who favoured this court of action, but he, along with some others, was obliged to join York in Brussels nonetheless. Whatever the case, Radcliffe was soon considered one of the Duke's closest advisers in that city. As it turned out, the move to Brussels and then to the United Provinces proved disastrous. York was unable to achieve any major success during this period and was not welcome anywhere he went. It also earned the rod of the Queen Mother and Charles II for those councillors involved in it, including Radcliffe. On 20 December 1650, the King wrote from Scotland and ordered York back to Paris. Some of the King's Privy Council were to attend York there. Among these new councillors to York was to be the Marquis of Ormond, Radcliffe's patron while he had been in Ireland. Radcliffe tried to take advantage of his link to Ormond, writing to the Marquis in early 1651. Ormond, who as you know was one of the most influential of royalists, had recently arrived in France from Ireland and Radcliffe sought to gain the Marquis' aid for himself and York in their plight. His efforts unsurprisingly proved forlorn, especially when when one remembers Ormond's recent appointment by the king, as well as the official condemnation of York's flight from that quarter. The fact that the behaviour of the duke and his companions was unpopular with the Queen Mother and those around her in Paris and these people were, in the absence of the king, the dominant group at the time amongst the exiled royalists, would have also disinclined Ormond to aid his old client. The Marquis instead chose to remain in France, dividing his time between his family's resident in Caen and the Louvre as well. I'm really bad at French pronunciation. I'm so <laughs> Eventually, in June 1651, after much delay in securing an invitation from the French court, York returned to Paris and Radcliffe immediately lost his position close to the Stuart heir. Having lost favour with the Queen Mother and others at court, he did not receive any other formal employment either. Indeed, some courtiers brought charges against Radcliffe, accusing him of giving evil counsel and of misleading York. Other factors also contributed to his fall from grace. Despite some powerful allies and patrons in the exiled royalist community, not least Ormond, Radcliffe found his friends reluctant to help him. The courtier was also disliked by some, even by people who would be considered his political allies, who uh, Radcliffe was closely associated with a faction known as the old royalist faction in the Stuart Court. He was, for instance, disliked by Lord Hatton, who in a letter to another old royalist, a member of the old royalist faction, Edward Nicholas, advised his correspondent to be wary in any free communication with Radcliffe. In a sense then, those he relied on within the court abandoned him, and this was rational. Within any court environment, the most important persons to have on your side were members of the royal family, including an exile court. Conversely, alienating a royal was disastrous. All courtiers knew this, and Radcliffe lost his position in court because of it. The gravity of the situation was not lost in Radcliffe. He even considered abandoning exile and the Stuarts in October 1651, but ultimately decided to remain in Paris. This was probably because his situation was not completely hopeless there. For one, he still had access to the Duke of York. He certainly had occasional talks with York on privateering matters. Yet it is also clear from Radcliffe's correspondence that his standing with York fluctuated greatly over the following years. In early 1656, Radcliffe commented that York had been civil to him recently, something that had not happened at some time, in some time. It was also true that between 1651 and 1654 that some former allies were prepared to maintain a relationship with him. Notably, Ormond's links to Radcliffe endured after 1651, despite Ormond's failure to support him during the attempt to seize control of the Duke of York's household. Indeed, Radcliffe proved useful to Ormond in a number of ways, including during court intrigues. In late 1653, when some in the Louvre were trying to remove Edward Hyde from Charles II's privy council by accusing him of treason, Ormond, who was gathering evidence on the case, used Radcliffe to contact Bishop John Bramhall. Bramhall had earlier been named as someone who had evidence against Hyde. When Charles II and his closest advisers withdrew to Cologne in 1654, Radcliffe kept the Marquis informed of the behaviour of those members of the royal family who stayed in France. On one occasion, he wrote about the difficulty the Duke of Gloucester's tutor was having with that prince, for instance. That was the type of detail he was providing. Clearly then, Radcliffe remained useful. As it turned out, his loss of kingly favour was not to be permanent. Charles II's withdrawal to Cologne changed changed the dynamic, even, between the different royal households within the Stuart Court. Each household effectively became independent of each other. Simultaneously, they had different policy objectives, leading to tension and conflict between them, and this worked to Radcliffe's advantage. Personal connections to the various households became vital. Anyone who could provide information to Cologne on the other households, or who could act as an agent to those around other dynasty members, was prized, and Radcliffe was perfectly positioned to fill this role. Most strikingly, Ormond employed him in one of the largest factional and inter-household disputes of the Stuart Exile, the clash over Henry, Duke of Gloucester's religious education in late 1654. The dispute started when Henrietta Maria, who had been granted care of Gloucester while Charles II was in Cologne, attempted to pressure her charge into becoming Catholic. She also had Gloucester moved to a Jesuit seminary at this period. When the young prince refused to cooperate with her, she publicly slighted him in the French royal family's presence. News of the attack on Gloucester's religion caused a misconcern in Cologne, not least because it could do considerable damage to the royal image at home in Britain and Ireland. Consequently, Cologne decided to send Ormond to deal with the situation and to remove Gloucester from Paris. It is worth mentioning that Radcliffe was the one who relayed news of the attempted proselytisation of Gloucester to Ormond in October 1654, choosing to write to the latter before informing the Duke of York. Ormond responded by using Radcliffe to put counter-pressure on Gloucester. Radcliffe, for example, told the young duke that he would forfeit his inheritance if he changed his religion and that he would be a traitor to his eldest brother. He also passed on a letter to Gloucester from Charles II, which Ormond had forwarded to him for the purpose of doing. Radcliffe took advantage of others within Ormond's circle of contacts to further his mission as well, in particular William O'Brien, the Earl of Inche Quinson, who was Gloucester's friend. Radcliffe instructed O'Brien to pass advice on resisting the proselytisation attempts to Gloucester. All of this was done secretly. Radcliffe's role in this affair did not end with Ormond's arrival in Paris. If Gloucester was to be removed from Cologne, funds had to be raised to ensure a dignified journey. Radcliffe and Hatton consequently acted as sureties for a loan from an English merchant in France, one William Scott. Then, in mid-December, Radcliffe was entrusted with informing Cologne that Ormond and Gloucester had set out on their trip. Undoubtedly, Radcliffe greatly assisted in Gloucester's removal from Paris. Even Hatton grudgingly admitted that Radcliffe's part in events was no small one. In a letter to Cologne, he criticised Radcliffe for carrying out his actions through intermediaries, for being unduly in vain in doing so, and for fearing the Queen Mother's wrath. Simultaneously, he acknowledged that Radcliffe had played his part well. So basically he went, I don't like this guy, he's terrible, I hate him for everything he does, but he did really well here. <laughs> These events marked the beginning of Radcliffe's rehabilitation in Charles II's eyes. True, his actions did not endear him to Henrietta Maria, as Radcliffe found out. During a visit to that household in mid-January 1655, Lord German, or Germain, Henrietta Maria's favourite, would not talk to him in civil language. The Queen Mother also complained about his behaviour at this time. These same deeds, nonetheless, proved his work to those in Cologne, giving him some influence within the wider Stuart Court again. Even those in Paris realised this. Despite the aff- aforementioned lack of sil- sil- civility, Dermain, with some others, approached Radcliffe in January asking him to convince Gloucester to write a letter to Cologne on their behalf explaining that they had no part in the proselytization attempt. Gloucester had earlier insisted that he would do no such thing. Yet, with Radcliffe's intervention, he did. Radcliffe received signs of the monarch's favour immediately after Gloucester's withdrawal from Paris as well. In February 1655, both he and Hatton came under pressure from William Scott regarding the repayment of the loan for Gloucester's trip. The merchant wanted extra guarantees that it would be repaid, specifically requesting a letter from Charles II acknowledging the debt. Radcliffe and Hatton both sought the letter. Radcliffe received the desired note. The missive had immediate effect, with Scott putting off the payment of the first part of the debt, which had been due that month, until Easter. This irked Hatton greatly, as Radcliffe's receipt of the required letter showed that he was more favoured by the king. It is no great surprise, however, that this should be the case, as Radcliffe was a more important participant in the Gloucester affair. It is also interesting that Ormond preferred to use his long-established connections with Radcliffe to deal with the Gloucester predicament, rather than taking advantage of Hatton's presence at the Louvre. The, histori- the historiography generally portrays Hatton as more central to, and more closely interwoven into, the old royalist faction as a whole. Yet Ormond saw the long-established patron-client relationship as being more useful. Despite Bradcliffe's r- relative alienation within the court, his unpopularity with members of the Stuart dynasty and other courtiers, he was still the first person that Ormond turned to when the crisis broke. And using his client in this manner. Ormond went outside normal channels of influence and action in court politics. Instead of calling on more central figures in his court faction to help him, or threatening miscreants with the loss of the king's favour, he used a minor figure near the part of the Louvre to prepare the ground for his arrival and to facilitate Gloucester's removal. These ties also held advantages for Radcliffe. He used long-established personal contacts with other courtiers, most notably Ormond and the O'Brien's of Inchiquin, to exercise influence on events, even if it was as somebody else's proxy. Through these, he could still make an impact on court life. Now, Although Radcliffe expected to be called to Cologne as a reward for his actions, he was not granted a formal position of trust for some time. In mid-1656, however, with the conclusion of an alliance between the Stuarts and Spain, Charles II court moved to the Spanish Netherlands and the Duke of York's household joined it there. Partly as a result of Radcliffe's lobbying, Charles II reappointed him as councillor to York, and Radcliffe moved to the Spanish Netherlands in mid September 1656. There was one drawback with his new role, however. York did not want him. There were two factors that complicated Radcliffe's reappointment to the Duke's Council. The first was that by mid 1656 he was a peripheral figure within York's household. While he continued to have some involvement with York Circle throughout the mid sixteen fifties, as we've seen, it is fair to say that others had become James's confidants. Among these was Sir John Barclay, a figure of whom Radcliffe disapproved, but who was firmly in James's favour from, from the mid sixteen fifties onwards. Radcliffe had become increasingly pessimistic about regaining his former hold on York while this continued. Charles II did not approve of Barclay either, however, and consequently the King did not appoint him to the Duke of York's Council in 1656 at the time of the move to the Spanish Netherlands. The grounds for a clash between York and the King over who should be the former's councillors were therefore in place. The second factor complicating Radcliffe's reappointment to the Duke's Council was the nature of the relationship between Charles II and his younger brother. Charles II, as part of the Spanish Stuart Alliance, Promised to bring British and Irish mercenary troops from French service into Habsburg service. These are basically the soldiers that Cromwell had sent abroad at the time of his, in the wake of his conquest of Britain and Ireland. This gave York the, uh, these troops were often commanded by the Duke of York while they were in French service. This gave York the upper hand in dealing with these brothers in this instance. Simply put, without his cooperation in transferring troops from one side to another, the Stuart cause would suffer. When Charles II took the liberty of appointing councillors for his brother, the Grief prince rebelled. Believing that Radcliffe was, and I quote, an absolute creature of those around the king, James objected to Barclay's removal, withdrawing into the United Provinces in protest in late 1656. Charles II was now in a serious quandary. The only way he could get himself out of it was to concede to his brother's demands to have Barclay reinstated. This he did in early 1657. Tellingly, It was Ormond who went to York with the news that Charles II had capitulated. Ormond had again left Radcliffe to his fate. This meant that Radcliffe's chief competitor for a position of influence in the Duke's household remained in place. Radcliffe thus faced a continuing prospect of being a courtier of only secondary importance. Radcliffe's predicament did not last long, as he died in June 1657. This, as you may imagine, ended his career as a courtier. (laughs) Considering all these aforementioned events, then how should we assess Radcliffe's impact on the Exile Court's intrigues and vice versa? And first, despite his secondary status, and this is what really I'm talking about here, the role of a secondary court here, not one of the major figures in a court on events. First, despite his secondary status and his inability to hold on to a desired position of influence within the Stuart Court particularly in the Duke of York's household, Radcliffe's deeds were still of some import within this institution. Grandees within the court, notably Ormond in this case, depended on the likes of Radcliffe to exercise influence. Radcliffe's cooperation helped them to wield influence across all the court's households. In the mid-1650s, having a contact like Radcliffe meant that Ormond, despite residing in Cologne, could react promptly to the intrigues of the Parisian branch of the Stuart Court, if required. Yet, it has to be conceded that, at crucial moments, other courtiers failed Radcliffe. When it became clear that Radcliffe was out of favour with the Stuart dynasty after York's flight from the Louvre in 1650, Ormond kept his distance from the former. The pattern repeated itself in 1656, when Ormond acquiesced in allowing Radcliffe's chief competitor for York's favour, John Barclay, to be reappointed as one of the heir's councillors. The fact was that Radcliffe needed to do the bidding of grandees like Ormond, or of royals like the King and the Duke of York, as his position at court depended so completely on them. In contrast, while they found him useful, Ratcliffe was never so so important as to be above sacrifice, particularly after he lost his grip on the Duke of York's court in the early 1650s. After that, he had no quid pro quo to offer them in return for their aid, and only wielded power within the court as someone else's proxy, as somebody else's cat paw. Consequently, when he found himself in the middle of a dispute between the competing factions within that court, he was nothing more than a foot soldier of faction easily discarded if circumstances required thank you